Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash JNA. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Agios Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash JNA. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Agios Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Hi, everyone. My name is Hannah Alston Carey. I'm a hematologist and clinical investigator at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. This presentation is called Getting to the Bottom of Hemolytic Anemia, Focus on Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. So let's take the case of a 28-year-old man who comes into clinic, and he's referred uh, with hemolytic anemia of unclear etiology. And this hemolytic anemia has been going on for some time. The patient has had uh, a pretty extensive workup. Uh, it's pretty clear that he doesn't have the more common causes of hemolytic anemia in adults, like, for example, autoimmune hemolysis. He's Coombs negative. Uh, he doesn't have thalassemia. He doesn't have other common causes of congenital hemolytic anemia. One thing that our patient had was a bone fracture. Uh, and at 20 years old, uh, you know, a young, young man should not be having, uh, you know, uh, spontaneous or, or easy bone fractures. So you may ask yourself, how common is pyruvate kinase deficiency? Isn't this a really rare disease? You may remember back to med school, maybe there was a slide or two in the hematology course about it or something from fellowship that you recall but maybe you've only had one patient or two patients, or maybe you haven't had any patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency yet. Well, they're out there. Uh, it's not entirely clear just how rare or common the disease is. We know it's reasonably rare. It's probably around one in 100,000 to one in 200,000 people in the West, uh, probably more in certain malaria endemic areas. Um, and you know, I think the, the important take-home about this disease, one important take-home about it, is that you can't diagnose it if you don't think about it. So you have to remember it exists and remember to do specific testing for it. Otherwise, the patients are going to, you know, continue on with no diagnosis or an incorrect diagnosis. Thinking about how these patients present, so, you know, the 20-year-old gentleman we talked about, that's a pretty classic presentation for a young adult patient with a new diagnosis, or, or I should say a uh, not yet diagnosed pyruvate kinase deficiency. PK deficiency has a really broad spectrum of, of disease. So uh, a lot of different disease manifestations um, uh, really fall into two major categories, the, the symptoms of anemia, of course, uh, fatigue, reduced exercise tolerance, um, uh, reduction in hemoglobin, uh, sort of obvious things. And then you have the symptoms of hemolysis and signs of hemolysis. So patients will have complications related to iron overload. Um, they may have liver injury. They, they can have iron overload in the heart. Um, they can have uh, iron deposition in other various tissues. Um, uh, so patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency can have reduced bone mineral density. Our patient that I just mentioned, he had had a fracture uh, by age 28. You know, having a, a sort of easy fracture when you're young, that shouldn't be happening. We recognize that a majority of patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency do develop reduced bone mineral density, osteopenia, osteoporosis, and often at very young ages. This is very similar to what we see in thalassemia. 
Um, patients uh, also have some outward manifestations of their hemolysis, like jaundice, which of course uh, uh, can be a real problem. You know, uh, for young children with PK deficiency, jaundice can uh, make them a target of bullying at school. For adults with PK deficiency, jaundice can be a real problem in their their personal and social lives. Uh, can make patients feel like they can't go on dates or get close to other people. Um, and so it, it does cause a lot of psychosocial, uh, you know, morbidity. Uh, some other less common things, but important things that can happen, patients can develop lower extremity ulcers, they can develop venous thromboembolism, they can develop pulmonary hypertension. So, you know, there's a lot of potential manifestations of PK deficiency that we need to remember. Unsurprisingly, uh, all of these things can have a rather significant impact on health-related quality of life in patients with PK deficiency. And, you know, this is something that's been looked at and, and patients, you know, they uh, are often not able to live as full life as they would want because of all of the complications of the disease. And, you know, it can be things that, you know, we normally think of as cosmetic, like, for example, having yellow eyes um, that can cause, you know, a lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, psychosocial discomfort for patients with PK deficiency. And then you have, you know, all of the complications of the disease and the reduced exercise tolerance, the inability to work uh, full days, uh, full eight-hour days, the inability to concentrate in school, uh, the inability to, uh, you know, have a busy family life. These are all things that you know, well, these are, this is common to, to many similar diseases like, you know, transfusion-dependent thalassemia, for example, or significant non-transfusion of malaria. Uh, so, you know, we take a look at his history and we recognize there are some clues there as to what might be going on. He had a non-traumatic bone fracture two years earlier. Uh, he had uh, cholecystitis a few years before that and had a cholecystectomy. So at this point, we have a, a adult gentleman with some of these uh, signs and symptoms of a hereditary hemolytic anemia, but we don't have a diagnosis. And in that setting, we, we should really start thinking about the possibility for hereditary pyruvate kinase deficiency. We see a similar presentation in patients with, with these other common hemolytic anemias, and it, it's very clear that this is also what happens in patients with PK deficiency. So when we talk about the differential diagnosis of PK deficiency, you know, really uh, we're, we're, we're talking about a lot of other things that are pretty easy to rule out. So we can do a hemoglobin electrophoresis and globin genotyping and know whether or not a patient has thalassemia. Um, we can do Coombs testing and uh, look at a peripheral blood smear and rule out uh, most causes of acquired hemolytic anemia rule out, you know, autoimmune hemolytic anemia frag and fragmentation hemolysis, you know, microangiopathic hemolytic anemias. Um, we can do flow and make sure the patient doesn't have PNH. So we, we can think about other causes of uh, uh, hereditary hemolytic anemias like hereditary spherocytosis, hereditary elliptocytosis. Um, we rule these out, make sure that there's no other disorders of hemoglobin, um, uh, like unstable hemoglobins, for example, Make sure the patient doesn't have a, 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 a congenital dyserythropoietic anemia um, and other enzyme defects. But when we're looking for pyruvate kinase deficiency and we know what we're looking for, we can actually diagnose it pretty easily. So a PK enzyme assay is uh, 
pretty reliable. It's about 90% sensitive uh, for diagnosis of PKD. Um, about 10% of patients that do have true PKD will have an enzyme assay result that comes back in the normal range. Um, uh, and that's sort of the low end of the normal range. That's because they have very high levels of reticulocytes and the enzyme is present in highest quantities in reticulocytes. And so we can get a falsely normal readout. Um, one way to fix that is to do a pyruvate kinase to hexakinase ratio, which normalizes the level of pyruvate kinase uh, enzyme to the level of hexakinase enzyme. Another uh, thing we can do, obviously, send off genetic testing, sequencing, exon sequencing. Exon sequencing is not perfect either. It will also miss about 10% of patients uh, who have uh, mutations in deep intronic regions. So we recognize that with a combination of these diagnostic approaches, we can be successful in diagnosing our patients. Thinking briefly about the genetics of PK deficiency, this is autosomal recessive. Um, there are over 350 known mutations in the PKLR gene uh, that uh, are pathogenic and can cause pyruvate kinase deficiency, and it just seems like new mutations are discovered every few weeks. So this is a very genetically heterogeneous disease. What's important for you to remember about this you know, heterogeneity is not all 350 mutations, but rather that there are different subtypes of mutations. So there are missense mutations and non-missense mutations. This actually has relevance both in the uh, prognosis of PK deficiency as well as treatment. So just to recap what we talked about with regards to pyruvate kinase deficiency, this is a, a rare but not too rare cause of hereditary hemolytic anemia due to mutations in the PKLR gene. Uh, it presents with uh, chronic anemia and the symptoms of chronic anemia, and that anemia can be highly variable from mild reductions in hemoglobin to rather substantial anemia transfusion dependence. Um, patients uh, also have the complications of hemolysis including iron overload, early onset osteopenia, osteoporosis, jaundice, and other complications. We diagnose PK deficiency with a PK enzyme assay, as well as exon sequencing. And the type of mutations that patients have are relevant, uh, both in the prognosis and the treatment of PK deficiency. And in the next presentation, we'll talk uh, a little bit more about uh, the pathophysiology PK deficiency, as well as the treatment. Hi, everyone. My name is Hany Elson Carey. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the pathophysiology in PKD and how we can uh, really improve that pathophysiology with treatments. So, just a reminder, I want you to hearken back with me to college biochemistry, all right? And remember the Emden Meyerhoff glycolytic pathway, all right? Glycolysis, all those enzymes, right? Uh, uh, how, how glucose goes to pyruvate and how we generate uh, two moles of ATP per mole of glucose. And for cells like red cells, which do not aerobically respire and are dependent on anaerobic uh, energy production, the ATP produced by pyruvate kinase is absolutely critical. So uh, uh, when we have a deficiency in pyruvate kinase, that really affects red cells and their, the total energy uh, that they have available to maintain their membranes and maintain their pumps and maintain their formability. And really that energy is critical for the, red, the normal red cell lifespan. So when we reduce energy uh, dramatically as happens in PK deficiency in red cells, we are really limiting that red cell lifespan, cutting it down to much, much less 
than the normal three to four months. And that reduction in energy can have severe consequences for the red cell lifespan. That leads to premature destruction of red cells in the circulation and in the reticular endothelial system. And that results in hemolysis, of course. Um, patients uh, with PK deficiency um, have buildup of some of the precursors of the glycolytic pathway. So remember again with me, uh, one of the one of the precursors, one of the the uh, steps in the pathway involves a two three DPG two three diphosphoglycerate, and when we have buildup of two three DPG, that uh, shifts the oxygen dissociation curve to the right, right? And so what happens then? That actually means that some patients uh, tolerate anemia uh, uh, differently than what, what we would expect uh, for the degree of anemia. This is something that's relatively unique to pyruvate kinase deficiency. And a patient with PK deficiency might have a hemoglobin of seven and tolerate it great. Another patient might have hemoglobin of 10 and tolerate it very poorly. Uh, there's often a lot of interpatient variability in how well they tolerate a degree of hemoglobin. But within a patient, improving that patient's hemoglobin makes them feel better. So thinking about the case of a 28-year-old gentleman who's recently diagnosed with pyruvate kinase deficiency as an adult, which commonly happens, um, what can we do to treat this patient? What treatment options do we have for pyruvate kinase deficiency? Well, the first thing we do is we talk to the patient about their anemia burden and how much the fatigue and the reduced exercise tolerance is impacting his ability to work or go to school, impacting his quality of life. And let's say our 20-year-old gentleman has a baseline hemoglobin of eight, and he has rather substantial uh, burden of disease from his anemia. He's really not able to work full eight-hour days He's taking a lot of days off of work. He doesn't have time for a social life. His jaundice makes him self-conscious about dating. Uh, and so, you know, consideration of treatment is really in order. What are our treatment options? Well, uh, you know, historically, our options were pretty much limited to transfusions, uh, which are given uh, really to treat the symptoms of the disease. Um, we don't uniformly transfuse all patients with PK deficiency to a specific hemoglobin, because like I said, uh, uh, the how patients experience their anemia really differs from patient to patient. Um, uh, we can do splenectomy, um, and splenectomy uh, can improve uh, uh, hemoglobin. It certainly is something that is considered much more in uh, the pediatric population, especially those patients who are dependent on red cell transfusions. Splenectomy can liberate somebody from red cell transfusion dependence, uh, but splenectomy leads to a lot of long-term potential complications. We know it considerably increases the risk for thromboembolic disease in patients with PK deficiency. We know it increases the risk of infection and potentially life-threatening sepsis. We'd like to keep spleens in when we can, um, uh, but splenectomy is an option. Another option that's been used historically is hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Uh, this is, you know, really only considered in patients with the most severe disease. And we consider transplant uh, uh, in patients who are transfusion dependent. We know we're trading one disease for another. Uh, in the published uh, literature, there's not too many patients with PKD that have been transplanted, but uh, about a third in, of them in the largest case series that's been published have uh, died, really, they succumbed to 
complications of the transplant, a lot of graft-versus-host disease issues. So if that's what we've had historically, what do we have now? Well, we have all of those options still, and now we have a new option. Shortly before recording this talk, uh, the pyruvate kinase activator midipinat just received FDA approval for the management of patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency. Midipivat is a first-in-class allosteric activator of the pyruvate kinase enzyme. So it, it binds to the enzyme away from the active site, and it induces conformational change that revs up the enzyme, makes the enzyme more effective uh, at uh, uh, converting phosphonylpyruvate to pyruvate, um, and therefore producing ATP. For those patients in whom midipivat is effective, it can improve hemoglobin and often substantially improve hemoglobin, um, and it can improve uh, the manifestations of hemolysis and the markers of hemolysis. So this is a targeted agent. So uh, it, it specifically targets the enzyme NPK deficiency that's defective. There were two phase three studies of midipivat in patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency, pivotal studies that looked at the safety and efficacy of this drug. So the ACTIVATE study evaluated patients who were not regularly transfused and found that patients had significant improvements in hemoglobin and also in significant reductions in markers of hemolysis. The ACTIVATE-T study looked at patients who were regularly transfused and found a significant reduction in the transfusion burden as well as improvements in markers of hemolysis. Now, one thing that's very important to recognize is that both the ACTIVATE and ACTIVATE-T studies excluded patients with certain mutations in the PKLR gene. This is because these certain mutations were found to have a low likelihood of response in the prior phase two drive PK study. These were patients with two non-missense mutations, as well as one missense mutation, which is particularly common in a certain community in the United States. These patients with these mutations may be significantly less likely to respond. In both studies, the drug was overall well-tolerated with uh, a, a very manageable burden of uh, treatment emergent adverse events. Now, lastly, let's talk about the potential future of treatment in pyruvate kinase deficiency. So uh, gene therapy is currently in a phase one trial right now, uh, uh, evaluating a lentiviral vector uh, product to correct the underlying genetic mutation in patients with PKD. Now, this product does require administration of chemotherapy uh, uh, as part of the ab ablation of the bone marrow, um, which is a certainly a concern, a potential concern. However, uh, the potential for cure uh, is obviously very attractive, especially in those patients who have very severe disease from PK deficiency. And especially if a patient uh, has severe disease that doesn't respond to midipivat. Preliminary results from the phase one study have been reported. Uh, two patients uh, were reported uh, that had received the treatment, um, and both patients have shown sustained normal range hemoglobin through 12 months post-treatment uh, with improvements in hemolysis markers and no red cell transfusions post-engraftment at nine and six months of follow-up. Both patients also reported improved health-related quality of life. Um, the treatment so far well-tolerated, um, and, uh, you know, very uh, promising uh, uh, potential therapeutic option based on the, these very, very early uh, reports. So uh, we'll keep a close eye on gene therapy and PKD as it goes through development. So in summary, we talked about how pyruvate kinase 
is the last enzyme in the Emden-Meyerhoff glycolytic pathway, how it's deficient in PKD, and how it can be upregulated or revved up with a newly approved product, Midipivat, which is a PK activator. We talked about other treatment options in PKD, like splenectomy, which can improve hemoglobin in some patients uh, and can liberate some patients from transfusion dependence, but at the cost of increased thrombotic risk, as well as increased uh, uh, infection risk. Talked about transfusions, which really should be used to improve symptoms in patients with PKD, because obviously they increase the, the risk of iron overload and necessitate chelation in patients often. Uh, uh, much earlier than they otherwise would need it. And we talked about uh, the potential uh, future uh, uh, treatment, which is gene therapy. Still in early, very early phase trials, but with some uh, promising er early preliminary results reported. So with that, thank you so much for your attention. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.